I'll add, uh, I'll add something to the, to the prayer time. Um, last couple of weeks, I've actually had several opportunities to be in Baltimore City, a place that, you know, is just, <laughs> obviously it's in, it's in our news, but it's in our news in not so great ways lately. And um, there's been three times in particular over the past uh, two weeks that I've, I've had the opportunity to be in the city one time to pray, uh, uh, do a prayer walk around the Baltimore City Board of Education, which was um, just a, a remarkable time of uh, praying with the, it was at, with the staff at Grace Fellowship Church, and it was with um, T.D. Allen, who came and preached on Palm Sunday, uh, and it was just such a holy time of, of walking around this, this area of town that is broken, but is also full of, of life and full of good things, um, and then um, well, on Friday night, we had our axe event, and we, you know, did, did the axe throwing thing, and we just had a time of, of the New Hope men uh, hanging out together and then going to get a bite to eat afterwards and having good conversations in and, and Fells Point, and that was just great, and just, I love the, the culture of our city. I love the, the architecture and um, just the, the character and nature of our city is just uh, really cool. And then um, the last night, Amy and I went to uh, the, the, uh, the Ecumenical Institute of Theologies at St. Mary's. Uh, they had their Jubilee celebration, their 50 years um, that St. Mary's has this Ecumenical Institute, which is just this uh, outstanding um, uh, organization uh, that does, um, you know, master's degrees, but it's a seminary. Um, but it is also just a beacon, I think, of ecumenism, and it's a sign of what the Church of Baltimore uh, can be and what the Church of Baltimore really is and, um, and celebrating 50 years of that incredible institution. So um, those are just my thoughts as we, as uh, what was going through my head during that prayer time. Um, so, Jesus... He's been raised from the dead. Amen. God's new creation has begun. Amen. Amen. So what? That's not sarcasm. That is the point of the series that we're beginning today. So collectively, between the four Gospels, there's roughly 15 biblical accounts of things that happened between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. We looked at one last week, and we'll look at another in a few minutes. And today, we're beginning this series called Living Hope. It's a series on living the resurrection life, or as Amy put it, uh, living life as a citizen of God's kingdom. We're not to use, the first to use that phrase. Actually, it's not even the first time that um, we've used it. I, I love that phrase because it speaks to the current season that we're in. First of all, it speaks of the resurrection itself, Jesus in person and, uh, and, our, and, and in spirit is our living hope. Uh, we live because he lives. Um, we've conquered death because he has conquered death, which means that the second living hope speaks of us. Um, we are the hands and the feet of the resurrection in our world today and for our world today. With the resurrection of Jesus, the earth is being reunified with heaven, and God's new creation has begun, and that means that you and I have a job to do. That leads to the third reason why I love the phrase living hope. It speaks of how we can speak into each other, encouraging each other, disciplining each other, um, discipling each other uh, to be better heavenly representatives to the world in which that we've been placed. 
So I'm excited about this series. Next week, we're going to look at at Jesus' words uh, to Peter, a man who seems to represent the church and the Gospels. We're going to look at what uh, Jesus had to say to him in the wake of Peter's failure. The next week after that, we're going to hear a Mother's Day message from our friend Kendall Ludwig. She's going to look at the... Uh, 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 I'm not sure what she's going to preach on, actually. Um, the week after that, we're going to look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we're going to hear about what men and women have done with that story here in our city. And then we're going to welcome on Memorial Day weekend, we're going to welcome Jay Davies back. And we're going to hear about the work that he's doing to help young people see God in bigger ways. We're going to hear, welcome back Mark Galley after that, the editor of Christianity Today, who uh, I've asked to come and give a sermon titled The State of the Great Commission. I want him to give a State of the Great Commission address. I said, as the editor of Christianity Today, you get to see, a, you get a unique perspective on the church. What's the State of the Great Commission in our world? On June 9th, we'll celebrate Pentecost together, and we'll learn about the birth of the church and the work of the Holy Spirit And then we'll close out our series with a Father's Day message with the incomparable Brian Wagner, who is one heck of a guy with an axe. May this series serve to remind our congregation that Jesus is alive and well in our midst. And for now, let me pray. Father, I ask that that this series, that these next coming weeks be a time of reflection on the resurrection. A reflection on Jesus is raised, the tomb is empty, even in the wake of the cross, so what? What does that mean to my life? What does it mean to my family? What does it mean to my job? What does it mean to how I live my life? How am I living a life of hope? Am I living a life of joy? Father, I just ask that, that um, these words, the texts that we look at, the individuals that come and, and speak from this pulpit over the next weeks, um, would remind New Hope Community Church that we are the evidence of the resurrection. May the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So, the way John tells the story, Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb on the first day of the week and finds it empty. With a stone moved away from the entrance, and she runs to Peter and John uh, to tell them what happened, and she's thinking that someone had removed Jesus from the tomb. This is in John 20, by the way. After inspecting the tomb and finding it empty, Peter and John went home, leaving Mary standing there alone, crying. After a while, she leans into the tomb and she suddenly sees that there's two angels who ask her why she is crying. She said, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. At that point, she notices a third man enter the room, but she didn't really recognize him. He asked her, woman, why are you weeping? Who, who are you looking for? And it suddenly occurs to Mary, this guy must be the gardener. And she says, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and, and, and I will come take him away. And then the man looks her in the eyes, and he says her name, Mary. And after that, he, after he said her name, her eyes were opened, and she realized that she was speaking to Jesus. She runs towards her, and, and he stops her and says, don't cling to me. I've not yet ascended to the Father, but 
but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary did as she was told. Now, think about this for a moment. This would have been a very dumb move on the part of the author John if he was making this up. If John was writing a fictional account of something that he wanted others to buy, he would have never made a woman the first person to have an encounter with the risen Christ, and he certainly wouldn't have told the story from her perspective. In the culture of the day, women had few rights, and their testimony didn't even stand in a court of law. If John wanted to invent a story of Jesus' resurrection in order that others might believe it, he was off to a very bad start. Of course, if it's true, it is remarkably affirming to the role women played in the early church. If John's telling the truth, well, then that means that this is one of the most important examples of the affirmation of women in the history of history. Jesus commissioned Mary Magdalene to be the apostle to the apostles. By the way, did you notice who Mary mistook Jesus for before she realized who he was? The gardener. Last week we talked about how the resurrection is the first fruits of new creation. And there's Mary. John puts Mary who mistakes Jesus for the gardener. I mean, that's brilliant. So Mary tells the disciples that she had seen Jesus. And and that evening Jesus appears to the disciples and greets them saying, Peace be with you. Shalom. Everything in its right place. He shows them the scars where the nails had pierced his hands and where the spear had pierced his side. And he again says, peace be with you. And he adds, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And John tells us that he then, he breathed on them, giving them the breath of life in the form of the Holy Spirit. And then finally commissions them to spread this gospel of forgiveness. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, They are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness of any, it is withheld. That's a difficult phrase. But I think it's a nod to the truth that sin is still a serious and deadly disease and there is only one known cure. If the disciples were going to retain or withhold the sins of anyone, that doesn't mean that they didn't forgive people their trespasses. It means that they are still naming, those people are still naming sin Um, for what it is. They're naming sin for what it is. It's a bondage of slavery over men and women. The apostles were commissioned in the name and path of Jesus. They were commissioned to preach the gospel of Jesus. They were sent to all nations of the earth to make disciples and baptize in the name of the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They were given the message that in Christ alone, living hope is found. Look nowhere else for it. The problem was not, what the problem was that not all of the disciples were in the room. And that's where John picks up the story in chapter 20, verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, or Didymus, some of your versions may have the word Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other's disciples told him, hey, we've seen the Lord. Now, do you remember the first time someone told you about their faith? 
If you're anything like me, it probably freaked you out. Maybe it was a family member or a friend who went through this radical change and they started acting differently and speaking differently and prioritizing different things. I had, I had a friend of mine in college um, who became a Christian, and, and even though I was even a Christian at the time, I was a Christian at the time, the change in his demeanor was just off the charts night and day. His language, which had been filthy, was suddenly squeaky clean, and his negativity and his cynicism were gone. Um, he had always been like a nice guy, but suddenly it was like he was a good guy now. I had been a Christian for about six years at that point, so, so I was energized by this newfound faith. I, I found it inspiring, although I think if I hadn't been a Christian, I would have been highly suspect of this guy's transformation. It's like what the heck is going on here? It's like this guy is a whole new person. And that's exactly how other friends of ours acted. Uh, when something amazing happens, it's natural to desire an explanation. Church tradition has taken to refer to Thomas as doubting Thomas. But I'm not so sure that's fair. Because first of all, I doubt that I would have been any different than Thomas. I would have think I, would have, I wouldn't have acted any different than Thomas did if I had been told that this guy who I saw die, who I know is dead, that this guy is now alive. Thomas must have witnessed Jesus doing some incredible things, but you know what? Even in Thomas's day, dead people didn't come back to life. That wasn't something that we figured out you know, through science years later after the Enlightenment. People in the ancient world knew that dead people didn't just come back to life. So after he is told that the disciples, uh, by the disciples that they had seen Jesus, Thomas replies, unless I see the hands, uh, in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I'll never believe. You know, reading into the text a bit, I think it's reasonable to believe that Thomas went back to his life after Jesus died. He went back to business as usual. So here's this situation where the disciples, they track him down, and they start spouting off this story about how Jesus, who Thomas watched die, is now alive and well and, you know, consoling Mary Magdalene in gardens. Thomas might have said, guys, I thought he was great too. I'm still trying to piece together the past three years and, and figure out what happened, but, but you know as well as I do, Jesus is dead. You have to let this go. Maybe he was just showing us what great life truly looked like, so let's make an example and live our life, live each day to the fullest, but that means we have to go back to our life. Spreading some silly idea about him being alive isn't going to do anybody any good certainly not going to get us back into the good graces of society. Do you know how much people hate us? No, we need to honor him by just moving on. And then maybe it was Peter who said, Thomas, you don't understand. We're not just telling some story. We met the man. We've seen him. Peter, I'm happy that you had some spiritual experience, but I'm not going to live your lie. Unless I see it for myself, unless I can touch him, and experience it myself and speak to him. And unless I see it for myself, you can count me out. I've spent enough time on him. Unless I have proof, 
I will never believe. I'll, I'll never have faith. Faith. That's a difficult word. Does faith mean the absence of doubt? James tells us that the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And in that vein, think about what doubt does to a ship like the one on the cover of your bulletin. I don't think it's a stretch to say that doubt can overwhelm us, that it can even consume us. We can make it the navigator. I think it can make us less ourselves as we allow the things we don't know to overtake the things that we do. Let me say that again. I believe that doubt can make us less ourselves as we allow the things that we don't know to overtake the things that we do. For us to doubt the existence of God and certainly the existence of a personal loving God is understandable. I think that one of the difficult things that Christians have struggled with over the centuries is honesty in regards to doubt. I remember that uh, when I came to the Lord, I was pretty involved in our church's youth group. My faith was alive, and I could honestly say I was, I was growing as a disciple of Christ, but, but I struggled especially um, with worship during our youth meetings. Our youth group was, was high energy, to say the least, and it was clear that many of the other students just absolutely loved to worship. And they didn't just worship with their voices. They worshiped like with their whole bodies. You know, and one day somebody got up front and said something to the effect that, you know what, one day, presumably in heaven, uh, we'll get to worship God for eternity. (laughs) I looked around and I thought of those kids jumping up and down with their hands raised and yelling praises to God. And I thought to myself, that sounds dreadful. We're going to have to do that for eternity? That's heaven? Let me get this straight. My options are spending an eternity in a worship service um, with the jumping up, hand-raising people, or eternal hellfire. That, that's the gospel? I guess I'll go for the worship service, but am I allowed to say that heaven doesn't sound very heavenly? In that moment, yeah, I had doubts. I had doubts about whether this faith was worth it. I had doubts that if I sh- and I had doubts that if I shared them with others, I wouldn't be met with sympathy and love. Instead, I was pretty sure that if I shared those thoughts with others, I'd be met with judgment and lectures. So I decided to just keep my thoughts to myself, and I don't think I did it did very good things for my faith, to be honest with you. In time I grew in my faith, and I discovered a few things that kind of helped me with that particular season of doubt. First of all, heaven may be about a pure and perhaps even worshipful union with God. Uh, Amen to that. But that doesn't mean that it's going to look like a youth group from the mid-90s. God's people have worshipped in a variety of wonderful ways over the centuries. And yes, I am looking forward to dwelling in that garden of variety. Second, I realized that I was wrong about heaven being some boring, but albeit comfortable alternative to eternal conscious torment. The, the picture of heaven that we see is of heaven coming here as God sets up his kingdom rule and reign on earth as it is in heaven. We have only glimpses in scripture as to what that's going to look like, but I have confidence that the cross and the empty tomb did not happen so that we could be bored for eternity. It turns out that I was right to doubt my own understanding of heaven. 
but I was, it wasn't necessarily right for me to distrust God. So John continues. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were, were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. And again, third time, peace be with you. Shalom. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. See now, Thomas. Don't disbelieve. Believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He said, I don't doubt that doubt is a powerful thing. It is able to seek, it is able to kill, it is able to destroy as it leads us down the path of cynicism. But you know, if I doubt the existence of God because of what I don't see, I also have to doubt the absence of God because of what I do see. What I do see is a world of wonder and beauty. What I do see is the words of, of, of Anne saying that God is alive and well doing wonderful things. What I see is the, the things that were mentioned right here, the, the, the joy of a new family having a baby, uh, the joy of, of me seeing that even in the midst of the brokenness of our city that there is good, still good there, that God is still active and alive. I see a world of culture and music and art and passion. I see a world hungry for righteousness. And I see a a church that has been a force of compassion towards brokenness. It would be dishonest and naive of me not to admit that that same church has often given way to some of the darkest moments of human history. But you know, if this story is true and the tomb is really empty, I think the role of sin and death in this new creation is one of a struggle that the fight um, is one of a struggle after the fight has been won. For after 2,000 years, the church has indeed struggled with believing that we are free to live our life by the kingdom path of the fruit of the Spirit. We've doubted God's goodness and His sovereignty, and we've fallen for the lie that the way you advance in the new creation is through manipulation and self-gain. Jesus calls us to a better way a kingdom way. And I also have to admit that I see the good work that God is doing in our midst. I've certainly seen it in my own life, and I think it would be dishonest and naive of me not to admit that I've seen him do some pretty remarkable things in the life of my friends. You see, I think that as dangerous as doubt is, I'm not sure that it isn't inevitable, at least to some degree in this present reality. In that light, Faith, I think, it's not just the absence of doubt. Faith is the presence of trust. I think the image we see in that James verse about doubt being something that tosses the waves is an image of someone for whom doubt has consumed their being. This past Good Friday, we've talked about how it's so crucially important that we see the truth of Christ is not just knowledge in our head, but also a relationship in our heart. In the same vein, I think it's so vitally important for us not only to believe in God, but also believe Him. We're called to believe this God, put our trust in Him, this God who is setting up His rule and reign 
among us and calling us to live into that life of citizenship of his kingdom, not then, not one fine morning when I fly away, but now. John says Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in him. I don't blame Thomas for desiring evidence. And if you're here this morning and you're struggling with doubt, I wouldn't blame you for desiring evidence either. For Thomas, he was able to put his hands into Jesus' scars and bear witness to the resurrection itself. And for us, we bear witness another way, a way that looks honesty, honestly at the way God has been working through re- redemption and reconciliation in our midst. I believe that the holy discontent that we feel about the things that still aren't put right is exactly where God wants us. As John said, Jesus did many other things in the presence of his disciples. My belief in God, it drives me to trust that he is still doing those signs in the presence of his disciples today and, yeah, in this church. My belief in God drives me to trust that he's still doing those signs. He is still working in the lives of you and I and others who are doing his kingdom work to build for his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's why I'm so excited about being the pastor of this church. That's why I wanted to give my life to working with a local congregation, to working with a community of Christ followers, to doing the work of of reminding each other and encouraging one another and, and yeah, discipling one another um, into the path of Jesus and reminding each other that we are the evidence of the resurrection you know, when, when we do these uh, remarkable things, and you can think of maybe the most remarkable thing that you've ever seen God do in your life, and you can tell that to somebody, you can give testimony to somebody, and you ask them, I don't know, man, you tell me, is the tomb empty? I believe that God's doing amazing things in our midst, and I believe that he will continue to do amazing things in our midst. And I think we also have the responsibility and the, the joy of doing it together. In that light, let me do a difficult thing and pray while I make my way up and pick up a guitar. Father, thank you so much for this community. I love my church. I love this New Hope Community Church. Father, I pray that you will speak to the men and women here today. I pray that you'll speak to the young people here today, the young people who are perhaps wondering Is this all real? Is this faith um, something that my parents do? Or is this something that I can do on my own? Father, I pray for the parents here. They can pour into the lives of their children and help them understand that the faith that they have is real. I pray for um, (laughs) perhaps those over the age of 60 that they can turn around and speak into a younger generation and say, no, the tomb is empty because I've seen it. Father, I pray that you do the things in our community as you see fit. Your will be done. And I ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.